Hello and welcome to Le Pep Scientifique, the pain podcast again. And my name is Bart van Buchem. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist and I'm your host today. Uh, and here with me today is Ebony Rio, Dr. Ebony Rio. And she is um, she's a physiotherapist by train and um, manual therapist as well, I guess. Is it true? Perhaps? Yeah, somewhat. Yep, um, somewhat. She's a uh, she's working at Latrobe University. She has worked with the um, the Australian Ballet and the Victorian uh, Institute of Sports. So that sort of uh, sums up some of your um, the things that excite you. And this is where this podcast is all about um, what excites you the most um, in terms of your work. And 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 obviously we are interested in in within the pain field. Uh, we're trying to. To sort of finding the relevance for your work and your excitement to what it means for the clinical work in in general but also where are we heading so welcome ebony oh thank you so much i'm really excited to have this conversation i can already think about the different things that excite me in research and clinical practice and why i choose to do both so i can't wait to chat all right let's just do the deep dive i guess um <laughs> So, um, yeah, what excites you? Ah, so many things. So I still love being a physio. I love listening to the person in front of me and their story and then taking the research and saying which bits apply to the person in terms of their assessment, their story, where they're starting, where they want to go, what's the role of manual therapy? How can I use my language in a really positive way? Mm. What can I do in terms of offering them exercise? How can I bring together all these different worlds that often sit quite separate for the for the the one human in front of me that has their own specific goals? So this is not a, you know, massive study where we're looking at the mean of humans, we're talking to a person in front of us. So as a clinician, I love the opportunity that I can make a difference for someone in front of me. But Professor Jill Cook said to me when I was graduating, so I did my honours with her and she said, oh, I think you should consider research. And I said, I don't want to do research. I want to help people. And she said, if you are a physio, you can help the person in front of you. But if you're a researcher, you can help many. And she doesn't remember saying it, but I remember it profoundly. And I love that because as a researcher, I feel like I had the opportunity to do work that can help many and influence many people in a really different way to that one-on-one interaction. So I think that's a challenging combination. Um, I can tell you by personal experience. <laughs> Uh, combining things uh, with the clinic and whatever you do aside and um, so where do you feel like your your added value is in 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 this combination and how does Mm. it reflect in your research so far yeah it's a really good question I I think I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and so I still have a foot in each camp but actually I think my research makes me a better clinician because the person in front of me, I approach everyone as a, as a hypothesis. What do I think is going on? What do I think you can do about it? What can I do about it? What are our timeframes? How do I reassess that? So I think that accountability as a researcher actually makes me a better clinician, Mm -hmm. but actually then my clinical practice 
improves my research enormously because in research, I look at some of the questions and I think, who cares, mate? Whereas I think we've got so many valuable clinical questions to ask. So I think if you still have a foot in that camp, you have an opportunity to say, what's the end point? What's the value? So I'd like to think I add value in each space, um, but I understand, you know, there are experts in either field that really thrive staying in their lane. I don't stay in my lane. <laughs> well done. So what does that what does that mean, not staying in your lane? Because I feel like there is some excitement in that. I'm excited by that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I think staying in your lane. So some clinicians are, are so good at um, their clinical practice. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can fall into a trap of mm. confirming our own bias. You know, I can do I can do tests, I can ask questions, people are coming back to me. The fact that people are coming back is confirming that I'm doing a good job. You know, a lot of our language is positive. We can forget the influence of all of those factors on the outcome. And I'm not saying that they're not real. In fact, they are real. All of those factors have an influence. Whereas in research, you, you have to be more objective. And so what I mean by not staying in your lane is just thinking outside of your specific expertise and saying, how can I, how can I kind of branch out a little bit and bring in some other components? Mm. So how does it affect your research? Uh, today so every research question is based on a clinical question so when I did a very small lab-based study on isometrics and isotonics my clinical question was does it matter if you're holding your muscle or moving it does the tendon even care? Can we match, you know, for time under tension and all of those things, does the tendon care? My my very clinical question was, are we just warming the tendon up? And second of all, what's the impact on function? And that's why we measured strength and all of those things, because I wanted to know if we did some sort of intervention, what would the functional kind of implication be? If I reduced your pain, for example, but you were much weaker, and you went and got another injury, mm. the athlete and the coach are not interested in that scenario. So even that very small lab study was a really clinical question, just really well designed to sort of be able to answer it. So I think every bit of research I do is based on, you know, can we keep moving forward and and find tools or pathways for people that have pain? So, so could you give an example of a research project that is happening today or, or maybe recently being published um, that reflects that intersect of, of, let's say, different areas that you've been able to, to use within your research question and make it relevant for the clinic? I'm going to give you one outside the box. Good. So I'm currently working on a project so I have the privilege of being on the scientific advisory committee for a children's charity, Little Big Steps, and they promote exercise for kids undergoing cancer treatment because we know, we know it improves their outcomes and their ability to tolerate treatment. So 
we are looking at using virtual reality as a way of engaging kids in exercise in a really fun way and engaging them because um, we know that we can use some really cool neuroscience principles to actually get them to move and, and engage with their friends. So we can use concepts of motor learning and exercise and neuroscience and all of those things in really sick kids to improve their outcomes. So nothing to do with tendons, but a really cool example of bringing together experts in oncology and exercise and physio and, you know, and, and parents and all of those different stakeholders for a really important outcome. No, oh, that, that's... I was really curious now, you, you sort of <laughs> gave me a bit of a reason to ask for, so you, you know, your background is most of them tendon related research, or at least um, a margin of it. So what would you see, like, what is the, where does the intersection with tendon and other groups, you said, you call like oncology. So how can oncology or learnings or lessons learned from oncology help people with tendinopathy? Yeah, great question. So I think that's the that's the advantage of not staying in our lane. So during my PhD, I found, so I I proposed my very first study part was people with tendinopathy will not have changes in their brain. It's nothing to do with the brain. Mm. It's all about the tendon. I was wrong. That's fine. So then I started looking at what techniques in neuroscience had the ability to modify the uh, the motor cortex. So then you start reading about stroke. So then you start reading about cancer. So then you start reading about all these other areas and you realize how much we can learn from each other. So the oncology kind of connection came from a coffee conversation with a colleague where she said, you do some stuff in the brain. That seems really cool. I know you're doing some stuff in VR. Do you think there's a place for that in oncology in kids with cancer? And we just started talking and there is some fantastic work going on in pediatric oncology with exercise. There's some great work using VR to reduce um, threat already, which is really exciting. So these already wonderful people kind of paving, you know, paving a way for, for that sort of work. But it's the ability to, to read outside of your area and, and bring it in and see what we can learn. So I can see that work out. So how does how does a treatment for what is appear to be a just a tendinopathy, which is maybe there for longer than expected, how would this modern, let's say, combined treatment looks like? So uh, for people who are listening now and and seeing people in in with tendinopathy, and the patient will ask. Or like, can you please treat my Achilles, for example, which is hurting me for about a while and, and likely to be disabled to some degree or not being able to, to exercise or um, being able to perform on your uh, level or maybe even professional sports. So how do you bring in these new knowledge that you have learned from all the way and all the other areas 
Okay, so we need to be really confident moving away from a a one-stop shop. Oh, you just need eccentrics or you just need a PRP. We know that humans are so complex that we we can't just stick with that anymore. So as clinicians, you need to be really confident to say, okay, you have some changes in your tendon, but actually we know that your Achilles tendon adapts which is fantastic. So the changes that you have in your tendon, your tendon is also thicker. So some great research from Sean Docking showing that your tendon has adapted. So as Dave Butler would say, you good little self-healer you, that's brilliant because you've given us the foundation to get going. Now we know there are changes in your muscle, but we can address that. That's okay. There's also some changes in your brain and spinal cord, and we've got some really cool techniques that we're going to pair with your rehabilitation. So what's going on with you is that you've got an irritated tendon. What do you need to do about it? Well, we need to do some strength training and retrain your spring, but we actually need to empower you. So we're going to teach you when to listen to your tendon because tendons are a bit sneaky. They warm up. So if you listen to your tendon all the time, you get totally misled. So if you're stiff at the start, you might do less and that's a disaster. If you are stiff at the start and you warm up, you could do way too much. That's a disaster. So because tendons are sneaky, I'm going to teach you that we're going to listen to your tendon 24 hours after the load you put on it. So we're automatically teaching people, but giving them some boundaries around when to um, pay attention and when it's actually really safe to be okay with some awareness and really not dial into it. Mm. We're going to teach them about different tendon loads. They feel like they have autonomy, but over what they do. So if you have Achilles pain and you don't know if you can swim or cycle or run, it's really overwhelming. But if I teach you actually swimming and cycling is super safe. Mm. They're not high tendon load because they're not fast we're not asking your tendon to act like a spring. So I'm going to teach you about your tendon. I'm going to teach you when to listen. And I'm going to teach you how we will progress you back. And that's using concepts of tendon load and tendon pathophysiology. I'm going to incorporate some muscle. I'm going to incorporate the brain and spinal cord, especially with things like, you know, a metronome. And what I've used is a whole lot of science that you don't even know about. Sounds pretty cool, right? Eh? It is cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is what excites me. <laughs> yeah, that's very clear. And I think if, if, if it's broad like this, I guess nobody could, nobody would dismiss it, I guess. How or, can you not be excited about this? Yeah. Well, let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's get to reality because I do think okay. people, there will be some resistance though, right? So like you're saying it's all in my head or whatsoever, anything that um, um, I think you, you because you're you're also treating people in pain and and um how do you feel like bringing these contemporary science into the clinic what is the what are the challenges first let's just start with the challenges because i think we talked about the opportunities there what are the challenges that you face when you bring in this contemporary science into tendinopathy treatment if you like yeah, this, there's a couple of challenges. So one of them would be, it's all in my head. And that is consistent across a conversation between clinicians and athletes or patients around pain. 
in that mm. when we try and explain it, all we've told them is it's in their head. And that's not what any of us want to convey. So one of the approaches that we use in tendons is to explain the the information comes from your tendon and it's really related to the load that you've done because in tendons, it's really closely related. And so we can teach people specifically about their load, but teach them about their brain response and teach them that because the brain is ultimately deciding lots of factors influence it, but, but load is such an important driver in, in tendinopathy. The second challenge that we have actually is when people don't have tendinopathy, they have some sort of other presentation and people are just told actually exercise is important. Exercise is good for endorphins. You know, you should just get on with it. And the example that I'll give you is outside of our tendons, we have this, this sheath these peritendon layers that slide and glide over a tendon. Mm. And if you have someone with Achilles pain, but, and they have this peritendonitis, then teaching them just, just to sort of, you know, stay active is actually the worst advice because walking and movement and calf raises and anything for the tendon actually just provokes their pain. So we can't forget the biology and we need to, you know, I love Dave Butler's concept of meeting the patient at their story if someone is telling you that they're worse with a particular exercise how can we kind of reduce their provocative load but keep them active we can't just continue to deload people um and have them do less and less and less but how can we really incorporate concepts of pain science and modern pain science but also with with respecting the biology, because that would be the other criticism that I hear is that you know it's just in their head. Yeah, sure, and I, I I can relate to that because for some people it's 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 a more societal burden, I guess. Although it is changing, right? It's not as the brain is not as bad as it was <laughs> uh, for many people. Um, so, so uh, let's move on here because I think it's a quite critical uh, thing. Here. So, so for some people that would feel like, all right, so every pain that stays there for longer needs sort of the same approach. So apply some pain science and you'll be fine. Um, what is the, I don't agree, but what is when, when there is a tendinopathy or a tendon related issue, what will be, for example, very different to someone who has ongoing low back pain? Mm, geez, that's a good question. Okay, so for example, in the patella tendon, so we see patella tendon pain in our very elite athletes, predominantly male jumping athletes, so volleyball, basketball with big mm. change of direction. And it's, you know, it's so interesting that culturally it's almost like a badge of honor. So I have had athletes say to me, you only get patella tendinopathy if you jump high enough. And so there's not this fear around mm. their tendinopathy. And so think of the context around their pain. They love their sport. They play sport a couple of times a week. They often don't have pain outside of their sport. So even the frequency of nociceptive input is quite different, but the context around their pain is completely different. And you think of that to someone that might have low back pain, that has pain more frequently, that 
might have a really different context. Mm. So I think just trying to understand that person and even between tendons, it's different parts. So in the Achilles or the elbow, the elbow is a great example. If I use my elbow in ADLs, it's provoked a lot. Plus I might need to use it at work. Plus I might play sport. So the frequency of input is different. The context around my pain is really different. So it's a really different conversation about how you might approach that person. But I don't think we should be, yeah, trying to lump them all in together. I think I did a terrible job of answering your question, but I did kind of walk around it. <laughs> That's very political. Sorry. <laughs> I like because it's something that 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 I think many clinicians will relate to. Where yes, where, where is it? Is it just applying and telling people that the spinal cord and the brain are important, and then things will sort of happen? I don't feel like, and I, I like the idea of. It, make, it makes it relevant to include that biology, that typical, typical biology of tendons and how they respond and what yep. is the nociceptive input actually that is important. And there is a societal unique situation. The context is pretty interesting where uh, that, that's where I felt like contextual um, where, when seeing your tendon, because most of the tendons, it, it, it's pretty you can, usually you can see what's happening there, right? So you can see your Achilles, you can see it when it's when it's swelling a bit, or uh, you can see the retinas. Compared to somewhat low back pain, you you can't yeah. see anything. So what, what? How is that seeing bit, that contextual bit of being able to see what's happening or not, perhaps? But in, no, I think it's important. I think the seeing, but also the ability to poke it and check that it's there. I think the representation on our sensory cortex. So we talk about upper and lower limb tendons being different. Well, the upper limb is so represented in our sensory cortex. You know, not only is it massive, it's used so frequently in, in ADLs and, and work. And then, you know, you look at the foot and ankle, you got this tiny little Achilles. But for people with Achilles pain, that's big. But I'm I'm so interested in that actually in terms of the bilaterality. Think of how close your Achilles sits when when you consider the the brain, you know, and the the ability for um those neuronal pathways. So we talk about bilateral Achilles and we consider it from a load perspective and it's all mechanical, but I think it's more complex than that. I think our Achilles in the brain actually sit really close to each other. Yes. So with that, is there is there an existing hypothesis that let's say people have tendinopathy on the left side, they're also likely to create a tendinopathy on the left and the right side at some degree. So there's a few bits of research. Yeah. So there's some research that shows if you, so there actually there's a few. So if you rupture your Achilles tendon, you are more likely to rupture your other side. So you are about 160 times the odds ratio of the general population. So Mm. it's quite high. So I, and I'm not meaning that to scare people, but the ratio of rupturing your Achilles, if you've had a single rupture, is is much greater. The second thing is we see that in people that have tendinopathy on one side, whether or not it's painful, they are more likely to have tendon changes on the other side. But again, that is considered 
quite mechanical. But there's this really cool surgical study from Hock and Alfredson where they did unilateral Achilles surgery and changed pain bilaterally. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. So what is going on in the spinal cord and brain? I don't even know, but that is so cool. And it's this one-liner and I need to meet with this surgeon and chat with him because I just think it's fascinating. Is so unilateral a, yeah. surgery, that, bilateral so, pain relief. So interesting. So, so that would that is that a, a short-term, uh, let's say short-term response, or is that like a three or six months? Um yeah, it's a good question. I'll I'll have to check the follow-up, but I yeah. just think it's incredibly interesting. Yeah. So, so it's so much more than just the tendon. Yeah. So we could bring in, for example, just um, I think we we are like the systemic inflammatory response. Let's say people's immune set point, if you like. You would yes. expect if you have a left side problem, it's maybe even more like a lucky shot for, for the left or like a, uh, a bad luck for the left what well, it could even it could have been the other side if depending maybe on the load they have gone through so we just say the immunology is also coming in here where systemic inflammatory conditions are and how re- relevant are they and how do you incorporate that bit in your use little treatment yeah, so I, I 100% agree. So our circulating um, environment is unique and goes through our whole body. So I think it's something we have to consider. And that can be stress, that can be immune, it can be lots of different things. It can even be different inflammatory conditions that uh, sometimes miss in tendinopathy. So, you know, don't forget that pain is one of the first reasons that people present to physiotherapy. In fact, in rheumatoid arthritis, um, joint pain, people will see physiotherapists for joint pain for years before they receive a diagnosis. Diabetes is the same. I think the average um, time to diagnosis for someone with pre-diabetes is seven years and they look at the healthcare costs in that time and it's really elevated. So people are coming to see clinicians with pain and pain might be a symptom for one a bit a better word of, of what else is going on in their their whole life and their whole physiology. Yeah. We could say the tendons are a strong predictor for general health. Yeah, they can be actually. Yeah. Absolutely. So tendinopathy is really closely related to diabetes, um, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, cholesterol. So yes, I would agree with you. How important are tendons, Bart? Pretty much, yeah. Especially when it's pretty much. Really... Oh, thanks. Another research so project. So important. Another <laughs> research project. Um, so we're actually looking at um, the relationship between people that present to physiotherapy practices and then have inflammatory markers in their blood because tendon pain joint pain is a often a first um clinical kind of presentation of some of these deeper health issues so my biggest clinical tip would be particularly in the person that has pain not related to load so what i mean by that is if your athlete goes for a run and they do far too much and they're sore the next day, that's a clear relationship with the load they've done. If they've had a month off 
and their morning pain and stiffness is unchanged or their morning pain and stiffness is more than 30 minutes, they really need a good workup from a doctor around the potential kind of inflammatory markers that they might have. Yeah, and having multiple areas or multiple let's say, tendons that seem to be uh, affected. Is that also a marker or a predictor? Spot on, yes. Probably, yep. yes. And, yeah. and, a, and a first degree relative of any of those inflammatory conditions. Actually, there's a really wonderful infographic from Paul Kerwin. It's called Screendom. And the mnemonic stands for um, lots of things that I can't remember, but it basically goes through like skin and exercise response and eyes and all of the different areas that you can ask clinically. And if you are ticking those off, they really need to see a doctor. You know, they might need education and exercise and management, but they also might need their kind of um, disease process managed first. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I think for the general public, so it seemed to be very important to pick up the right um, reason to load or to unload, to take a rest. Yes. For professional athletes, it's not always, it could be career ending if they don't take the right angle or the right um, approach, if you like. So what in the management of tendinopathy returning or either, let's say a chronic version of it, what will be a key difference between someone who's, let's say, not necessarily an athlete compared to someone who's a professional athlete. Is there in the management, what would be the difference from your perspective? So probably the key difference for our athletes and our general population is considering whether or not we're rehabilitating someone or if they're in season. So rehabilitation, but is what I define as we have control over their loads. So this is where someone's coming to you and saying, my tendon hurts. Can you help me? Can you help me get back to life? Or an athlete is saying, my tendon hurts, I can't perform, I've pulled myself out. So you can remove their provocative loads. You can take away their spring loads. You can remove compression. So if we're thinking of the Achilles insertion, we're going to take them out of dorsiflexion. We're going to make sure there's nothing into dorsiflexion in their gym program. We're going to take all their spring loads out. So in a rehabilitation sense, we have control over someone's loads. Now, we actually don't rest them. Rest is good for nothing. So what we're going to do is actually reload them with safe loads really early. And for tendons, because tendons are a spring and they're about rate of loading, safe loads for tendons are anything slow or static. They don't care about heavy. The muscle cares about heavy. The tendon only cares about speed. So we're going to get people really early in the gym, loading safely in a slow and static way. We'll progress them up to being springy again. The difference in season is we can't add those spring type loads because the spring type loads, they're already overdoing with their sport, with their training and their games. So in season, I'm moving someone through a progressive load program. In season, I'm removing as much provocative load as I can. Can I reduce the frequency of their training? Can I reduce some of the volume? 
Can I take out some of the drills? Can I remove some of the compression in gym? So someone with a hamstring tendinopathy, can I take them off deadlifts, but put them on prone hamstring curls? So how can I really understand tendon load and safely manipulate their load in season without um, resting them, but I'm not adding any additional spring. It's all about removing provocative load. But interestingly, people in the past have been worried about adding static and slow loads. They've, they've tried to sort of rest the person, but tendons hate it. They hate just going hard twice a week. They're much better off doing their slow and static loads in season to kind of protect them for those higher loads. So that's probably the main difference between the athlete and the general population. Yeah. So, but I think these, these, um, so that will be the final question. So is an athlete, does, do they have different tendons by let's say phenotype or when, once they have gone through that process of heavy loads, like extreme uh, or maybe just ongoing uh, loads that that sort of does that change and does that change the 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 way the tendon behaves and how nociceptive input for example is changing could you say is that is the athlete different to a person in the general public the non-athlete well there there is some self-selection because our good athletes tend to be athletes, but also they're the ones that are more vulnerable to tendinopathy. So there's a genetic component. Mm. So our really good athletes have stiffer tendons. And I don't mean stiffer in the clinical sense, oh, my tendon hurts. I mean stiffer in the physiological sense of energy storage and release. They're very efficient. So our better athletes have stiffer tendons because they have tighter packed collagen fibrils. So then it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling because during adolescent adolescence, if you're better at sport, you're more likely to get picks. So you'll play more. So then there's a load related issue as well. So our better athletes get tendinopathy, but there's some self-selection that goes on there. When we're talking about um, pain, there is a little bit of research around that shows that some of our athletes, particularly endurance and combat athletes tend to have uh improved pain tolerance. So what I mean by that is they'll have reduced pain threshold. They'll have better performance during a painful stimulus. So there's a little bit of research around that shows that athletes are a little bit different. They're a little bit of a different breed. Yes. Yes. I guess so because it relates to, well, I think you're the area like ballet. It's not, it's not uncommon. They, they are, they would probably will say it used to hurt a bit. And that's also something that keeps me sort of awake and, and it's part of yep. the thing. And if it's not there, I've even been worried more than if it's not around. I might have not been pushing myself too much. Um, I don't trust my body if it doesn't hurt. So I've seen many different um, views on that and perspectives. It's super interesting. All right. So this it's is so interesting. Yes, absolutely. And the, the reason that I ask you so, because I think, I think there is a general view on on we have to learn from the athletes, right? So what happens in in the on the top one percent, like in the freaks of nature, we have to learn from them because if if this famous football player can return in six months back to let's say full on Champions League level, 
why do I have to rehab for nine months? So I, I think that's uh, <laughs> something that the general public looks, sees what happens in, in, in the top of performance. And do we, are, that's my question came from, are we the same or, or do we have to take but, an account? You know, the- you've, you've just described such a frustration of mine because it, it goes both ways. We try and adapt research from the general public to the elite athlete because there's not enough research in the elite athlete either. So one of the frustrations that I have is trying to take research and apply it to everyone. We Mm. should be considering the nuances. So how can I take evidence? So I'm going to give you a slightly different example. I say to people, I don't want you to be recipe driven. I want you to be evidence-based and to be evidence-based in tendinopathy, you might use concepts like heavy, slow resistance, but I don't use the published protocols for the patella and the Achilles tendon because they're on two legs. Now, everything we do as a human, we do on one leg at a time. So what I do is I incorporate research from neuroscience around cross-education, where if you strength train one side, you get some transfer over to the other side. So if I incorporate two pieces of research, I'm going to do heavy, slow resistance, but I'm going to do it on one leg at a time. So what we don't want to do is just say, oh, there's a new paper out and Bart showed that everyone with tendinopathy should eat, you know, aeroplane jelly. And then everyone does it like that's nuts. What we need to do is say, well, you know, who does this apply to and at what stage of their rehabilitation or are they in season or, you know, how can we incorporate it into what we've done rather than just looking for the one thing? My most frustrating question is, should people be doing isometrics or isotonics or eccentrics? It's like, well, that's nuts. They should be doing all of them. It just depends on when you're asking. And none of those are complete rehabilitation. Absolutely. And I think that's a nice take home <laughs> where my, and we just have to wrap it up because we are already. Sort Sorry. Of, I could um, talk all night about not, 10 minutes. Yeah, but. no, it is fun. And, and um, but we need to keep something in the pipeline <laughs> or something like a great, so something in future, like a big session that will be quite amazing with you. I would be happy to host that. Um, but we're also keen um, if we can, if you can invite two people for a, like a good night out, having a proper chat and a drink. Um, who would that be? Mm, that is a good question. So, oh, I should have. I wish you'd sent me this a week ago, although I would have spent a week thinking about it. Probably this is better. I can tell you this is it's going to be. This is torturing when you have to think about a week. You don't want to probably, you don't want to. I know, <laughs> I know, absolutely. Um, so I am going to say Professor Lorimer Mosley, because mm-hmm. every time I've shared a glass of red with him, yeah. I've not only learned something, I've laughed my ass off, which is brilliant. So I would definitely have a glass of wine with Loz every day of the week. And I'm also going to say the Queen and not because I'm particularly, you know, I'm just so interested in 
or even the Queen Mother, actually, if we're going to go back a step. So I'm currently listening to um, Harry's book, The Spare, and I'm just, I'm intrigued in the backstory. So I would just love, so that's probably just a reflection of what I'm listening to at the moment on Audible, but I just, I just have so many questions um, that are just unrelated to any area that I work in. So I think it's exciting to talk about things outside of your own lane. Well, maybe there are some inter, 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 intersection between the royal family and, and tendinopathies. At some maybe. Point. <laughs> there maybe are. I know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could invite, you know, there'd be so many other people I'd invite. I'd invite my two kids, but they wouldn't have a drink. Obviously, they're eight and nine, but they'd be annoyed to not be invited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can be in the background. That's fine. Right. They're, they're, they're Fair all, things. Yeah, so they're invited. All right. I mean, so, not that my husband will ever listen, but I should probably say my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are already five people now, so it's kind of... It's, it's a party. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. And the queen will take a whole bunch of people with their, like, security and whatsoever. Perfect. Um, so um, thank you, Abs. It was, um, this was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for joining and uh, sharing your thoughts. It's much appreciated as always, and um, well, we're going to keep in touch. Um, if you, um, for everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, this was Ebony Rio, and uh, we're going to launch a new episodes in two weeks um, with another exciting guest, I guess. Um, if you're interested in more stuff, just please go to the website. You'll find so much more stuff that um, we're trying to share with you, and um, um, with uh, including the clinical confidence series um, and where we trying to apply what we're preaching at least. And Emily uh, uh, may have a role in the future where she can tell you a bit more about tendon and pain and everything that's excited about that. So thank you for <laughs> listening and have a great day.